I'd like to talk with you today about finding peace and meaning and order in the chaos of life. Uh, speaking of chaos, has anyone been following Deflate Gate? Deflate Gate fascinates me. Uh, I'm not a huge sports person, but I, I love studying people and how people work. In fact, when I was in journalism, most of the stories I did resulted from this belief I have about life that goes like this. Where there's money, there is cheating. The more money there is, the more cheating there is. So the question isn't if people are cheating when there's a lot of money involved. It's usually how are they cheating. So for someone who thinks like that, this deflate gate thing fascinates me. Uh, if you're not aware of it, it has to do with NFL football. Next week's the Super Bowl, right? So I thought we'd do a little bit of foreshadowing today with a football-themed message, okay? Now, in the championship that determined who's going to play in the football, uh, the, the Super Bowl, okay, the New England Patriots played against the Indianapolis Colts, and, and they won, you know, pretty, pretty well, okay? But what happened is that during the game, one of the Colts players felt a football that New England was using and, and thought it was underinflated. Now, when I first heard that, I thought, and perhaps you thought, well, big deal, both teams are playing with the same ball, right? Wrong, I have learned, okay? This is fascinating to me, all right? Because think about this, billions of dollars, this is a huge industry, okay? Everyone's looking for any little way they can get ahead. And here's how it works. Each team provides 12 footballs, Two hours before the games, the officials check them, make sure they're at the right air pressure and everything. Then those balls are entrusted to the team's paid equipment manager, who they're in his possession, right? Okay, now here's how it works. When you're on offense, you use your balls that you brought with you. And when the other team is on offense, they use the footballs that they brought with them. So the teams are not playing with the same ball. And think about this from a cheater's mindset, okay? When you're on offense, who's touching your football 99% of the time? You are. So if something was wrong with your football, would the other team know? Ah, not unless they get an interception. They're not going to be touching your football. Okay, so the more I've thought about this, I've thought, wow, this is really fascinating. So I was really eager to see when the NFL did its study of were the balls underinflated, how's it going to come out? And if you didn't catch it, the conclusion was that 11 of the 12 footballs used by the New England Patriots were, get this, underinflated, okay? And here's why this matters. Again, if it's cold out and it's rainy, the ball's slippery, and your hands, your fingers don't work as well when it's cold. So if that ball is soft and spongy, you have a significant advantage, especially if the other team is playing with a ball that is slippery and they, they can't grab, right? So uh, as a non-football person, I've been following this, and I was on ESPN.com on Friday watching the reaction of NFL commentators to the NFL findings. And I was surprised at how emotional these guys got, okay? Because these, these NFL commentators for ESPN, they're all former quarterbacks and receivers. They know all the dynamics. They know that the equipment manager is going to do whatever the quarterback tells him, right? And so they're processing this. And uh, if you haven't gone on to ESPN.com and watched some of this, these guys, some of them almost get moved to tears because they're, so, they're just so upset that a team 
would do this because the game is supposed to work a certain way and there's supposed to be some rules and, and everyone's upset. And right now a lot of fans are upset. And so they're appealing when, when we get upset, when life, when there's injustice and life just doesn't make sense, what's our human nature to do? We, we appeal to a higher authority. So there's these appeals to the, the NFL authority to, to have an investigation. And there's this look at, well, what's the rule book? You know, what, what's the structure? What gives meaning to this? And I thought, this is such a metaphor for life. It's such a metaphor for our lives because our lives are full of overwhelming chaos and injustice and times when we don't know what to do. And I think we all long for someone or something to give some order to the chaos. It's a tension. And here's the tension. We need a greater theme to give meaning and continuity to the overflow of information in our lives. Right? We live in a world where we have an overflow of information about celebrities and about sports and about terrorists and about human rights and about politics. There's just this overflow of information. And there's all these different belief systems and all these different ways of looking at the world. And everyone has an opinion. And there's just this, at least in my life, sometimes it's just like, man, like how do I fit all this together? How do I make sense of all that's going on in the world and in my life? I think the emotion we experience is, is feeling overwhelmed or exhausted, sometimes shocked or surprised. I can't believe that's happening in the world. What do I even make of that? And then as we try to process it, we find out our parents have a different outlook and the kids we grew up with have a different outlook and our, our spouse maybe has a different outlook. Have you ever felt this tension so many opinions of what to do or what to believe and they're all so different it just leaves you unsure? You know, if I write on Facebook what I really think about this, no matter what it is that I think, someone's going to be mad at me, right? Someone's going to be upset. And this isn't just an issue for Christians or people of faith. This is a national issue. A couple years ago, the New York Times wrote a story titled, What Is It About 20-somethings? And the story talks about how Americans in their 20s are essentially trying to find this this greater theme that will give some coherence to their lives. And here's what the story says. The 20s are a black box, and there's a lot churning in there. One-third of people in their 20s now move to a new residence every year, okay? So between age 20 and 29, one-third of Americans now, every year, they're moving. 40% will move back home with their parents at least once. They'll go through an average of seven jobs in their 20s, okay? So between finishing college and, and 30, changing jobs almost every year, right? Maybe every year and a half. Two-thirds will spend some time living with a romantic partner who's not their spouse. We're in the thick of what sociologists call, quote, the changing timetable for adulthood. And then the writer says this, sociologists define the transition into adulthood as marked by five milestones. Here they are. Completing school, leaving home, becoming financially independent, marrying, and having a child. And so sociologists for a while have been using these milestones like, okay, once someone has done all those things, they've transitioned from being a dependent to an adult. In 1960, 77% of women reached that by age 30. Now, less than half reach that by age 30. 
1960, 65% of males reached all five milestones by age 30. Now less than one-third of males will finish college, be financially independent, get married, have kids by age 30. Why? Well, they're out there searching for this greater theme. (laughs) There's so much noise and data in their lives. It's not like growing up in the 1950s when it was like, you know, go to college, get a good job, get married and have kids. In fact, the writer of the story, who's a young American, then says, and who's to say those should even be the five marks of adulthood? Who's to say those are the marks, right? Because we live in an age where everything is kind of up for grabs. Everything is, well, well, that's your opinion that those are the marks of adulthood. All this cultural change, overwhelming amounts of information and points of view, an inflow of news. So Americans who struggle in their marriage, they wonder, well, what does marriage even mean anymore? And it's a, it's a universal tension. I, I think it, the, the younger generations might flail around in it a little more, but it affects all of our generations. It affects all of us. It affects our relationships. It affects the pursuit of meaning, of parenting, of work. In our moments alone, when we think, well, why am I even doing this? Like, what's, what's the point? I was reading a piece in the New Yorker the other day, non-Christian writer, and here's the conclusion she came to. She says this, the idea bloomed in my head that being governed by something other than my own wishes and wanderlust might be a pleasure, a release. Here's an American around my age who grew up in a a non-religious environment that said you don't have to take God seriously and and she has spent her years since college just finding pleasure and being an adventurer and doing what self says will be fun and fulfilling. And she comes to this conclusion, I would love to be ruled by something other than myself for a little while. We all long for someone or something to make sense of the world. I, th- I think that's part of why we love football and sports. Because for those couple hours while you're watching the game, there are these clear white lines. And everyone has to play within the lines. And there's clearly defined right and wrong. And consequences for actions are immediately given out. And for a couple hours or a few hours while we're watching the game, life is measurable and predictable and makes sense. So no wonder that NFL fans are a little upset that their corner of the world that actually makes sense has maybe been unjust. In football, when a week from today, when you're watching and the, the quarterback looks down, he's got this flap, he's got a little flap thing on his wrist and he lifts it up. Um, those are not text messages from his wife. They're not pictures of his kids. That is the playbook. Every team has their own playbook, which is their plays. And these guys, this is their livelihood, right? There's a lot of money at stake. You could wake them up in the middle of the night. They have memorized these plays. They know how to run the play. And the quarterback has that right there on his body because whether or not his offense is going to succeed and win the game all comes down to this playbook. All comes down to him and his teammates being able to execute their play. And in life, we've all got a playbook too. 
We all have one. It's not a question of what your playbook is. It's a question of, well, that is the question. What is your playbook? You, you do have one. Uh, is, it to, is it to just do what feels good? What's the playbook in your life? And here's good news that God gives to those of us who are, are kind of looking for something to hold life together. Your playbook determines your freedom and fulfillment in life. Uh, what do we mean by your playbook? We mean, well, w- when, when you're in conflict, when you have a difficult decision to make, when you have an important decision to make, what's your reasoning for it? What are you going to look to when you're not sure what to do or what to believe or, or what to think? What are you going to look to for instruction and for direction? That's your playbook. And, and you do have one, even if you don't acknowledge what it is. You do have one. And what you pick as your playbook, it will determine how free your life is, how fulfilling your life is. It will determine after your physical body wears out and dies, it will determine your eternal life. Hospitals are full of dying people who look back on their lives and realize, I never thought about where all my decisions were leading. History bursts at the zippers. Millions of people who went along with the playbook of the society around them and got to the end of their lives and thought, that's it? That's it? That's all? And God brought you here today because he... He loves you. He wants the very best for you. He wants to point you to a playbook that can hold you together in the difficult times of life and a playbook that can protect you from yourself. See, many people, their life-defining mistakes aren't made in the difficult times. They're made when they get the huge bonus check or the huge commission and there's money in the bank and they're healthy and things are going well. That's when people have affairs. That's when people get greedy for a little more and decide to cheat on their taxes. God brought you here to make you aware what is the playbook in your life and to point you to the one that will lead to life. So three primary playbooks according to scripture. We'll look at these quickly. First playbook, self-wisdom. When I have a difficult decision to make, when I need direction, well, what do I think is the best thing to do? That's self-wisdom. And scripture is really clear on this. It says that it leads to death. There's a way that appears to be right, Proverbs 14, 12, but in the end, it leads to death. Now, uh, women, I'm just going to give you something here for your next argument with, with um, your spouse or with a, a male in your life, okay? Because the older translations of this say, there's a way that seems right to a man, There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. So you just jot down Proverbs 14, 12. Next time your husband wants to buy that next toy, okay? Many people live their whole lives from self-wisdom and never stop to examine, where's this road going to end? That was the case for Timothy Treadwell. Uh, Timothy Treadwell, like, like a lot of us in America, was raised on this mantra, follow your heart. Follow your heart. And Timothy Treadwell, who had some difficulties in life, he, he really did search his heart. And, and as he did, and as he explored life, he came to the conclusion that, that nature is the closest thing there is to a God. And that nature 
is healing and that if he could get into more of nature, he'd be more fulfilled. So he started to spend his summers up in Alaska. Uh, For 13 years, he was up there and he started to hang out with these grizzly bears And he became kind of a national celebrity. He was on Discovery Channel. He was on Late Night with David Letterman. He was on NBC Dateline because because he was like, man, I've followed my heart. Nature's beautiful. These bears aren't so bad as everyone says. Well, until October of 2003, when the, the bush pilot who was scheduled to pick up Treadwell and his girlfriend landed there, went to their campsite, and, and at their campsite, he couldn't find anyone. He just found these like shreds of a tent and these two really angry grizzly bears. He calls the park rangers. Park rangers find enough human remains to confirm Timothy Treadwell and his girlfriend were eaten alive by these grizzly bears. I mean, it sounds really cute to tell people, follow your heart. Man, I wonder what Timothy Treadwell's elementary teacher who told him that, I wonder how she feels now. There's a way that appears right, but in the end it leads to death. It's not usually that bloody. But God in love tells us this. He's not here to beat you over the head and say you're an idiot. He's here to say, there's a better playbook for your life. There's a better way than just always doing what you think is right. In fact, if scripture says anything, it says don't follow your heart. Because your heart is deceitful and your heart is desperately wicked. So many people who think wealth and success and fame will bring them meaning. So many of them end up depressed, end up on antidepressants, end up taking their lives. I saw this over and over as a journalist. You think the, the wealthy and famous people are happy and they're not. Robin Williams and plenty others give us evidence of that. There's a way that seems right to us. That, that should lead to fulfillment and peace and, and inner peace. And, but it just doesn't. And God in love says, I've got, a, I've got a better way for you. So here's a question. I wonder, in what areas of your life right now, have you got a decision to make? There's some conflict. You're wondering what to do in your marriage or with your career. And, and maybe has... Have you been looking to the playbook of self? It's the default for me. If, I, if I'm not really looking into God's word consistently, this is what I default to. What area of your life right now is that your playbook? Second, second playbook that God tells us about is culture wisdom. The, the wisdom of the, the fabric of society around us, all the experts. And culture wisdom, of course, it changes throughout world history. But what doesn't change is the human tendency to want to be a clone, to want to fit in. Because rocking the boat isn't popular. And so all throughout human history, there's this tendency to fit in with whatever society around says is right or wrong or good or bad. And and God tells us about this in Romans 12. He says, do not conform. And that's the Greek word for a mold. When, when someone would, would carve a mold out of wood, they'd pour wax into it, and then they'd pull the mold apart so they could make lots of wax figurines that were identical. That's what this word is. Don't fit the mold of the pattern of this cosmos, cosmopolitan, the world system, the, the emerging power class and what it says to do. But instead, as a follower of Christ, be transformed from the inside out by renewing your mind. 
It's only then that you'll be able to test and approve what God's desire for your life is, which is good and pleasing and perfect. We become lemmings when our college professors or our peers, they all laugh at the same thing. And so we think, well, I'm going to avoid that. I don't want to be laughed at. When the authorities in our lives all applaud something, we move toward it, and it becomes the standard for what's right and what to do. This was the case for Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was a German man in the 1930s. He had a position in the German military, and that was his career. And just like any of us with our career, he wanted to be promoted. He wanted to do well. He was promoted continually. Ended up becoming the one who oversaw the capture and the torture and the transport and the extermination of millions of Jews during World War II. Eichmann, after World War II, fled to South America. He got captured. And in 1962, there was a world-famous trial of this Nazi war criminal, Adolf Eichmann. And here's what's incredible about that trial. Eichmann consistently, calmly, every, every time he was interviewed by an attorney, every time the judge talked to him, he was so calm, he was so consistent, and his answer was always this. I was just doing my job. I don't have anything against Jewish people. I'm just following orders. I'm just a cog in a machine. Don't blame me. wonder how many people in Germany from 1936 to 1944 were simply following orders. They lived in a world where every newspaper and every neighbor and every leader said, this is what's right, and if you don't do this, you won't get the promotion. So they adopted the playbook of the culture around them. Because we all have to have a playbook. It's human nature. And if it's not the playbook of self, then this is kind of the next most popular thing. How many people today base what's good or bad, right or wrong, simply upon the spirit of the age and what it says is good or bad or right or wrong? And you don't really want to push against it because people might single you out. Today we live in a society where if you veer from the emerging power class, if you break from them on certain issues, you'll be laughed at, you'll be ridiculed, you'll be called backwards and bigoted, prejudiced. It's a world, ironically, that says it values freedom of expression and freedom of thought. It says that, but then has this very narrow alley of what you're actually allowed to believe with any kind of passion. And this is normal in human history. It was normal in the Roman Empire. If you were a Roman, then when in Rome, this is how human history works. It's how it worked for Egyptians. It's how it worked for the Greeks. It's how it worked in 1930s Germany. It's how it worked in 1950s to 1970s Soviet Union. And it's how it works right now for a lot of the people around us. Well, God says there's a, a better option. And by the way, if you want to live as a clone... Um, you'll be fairly comfortable. You just won't be noteworthy. <laughs> you won't ever do anything of significance. Here's God's better option, God's wisdom, which leads to freedom. I love this verse, Psalm 119, verse 45. I will walk about in freedom. Why? 
Well, because I sought out your precepts. It's a, it's a word for, for scripture, for God's commands in scripture. And the writer's looking back on his life and he's saying, there's a great freedom in my life and it's because whenever I have a big decision to make or I don't know what to do, I look to your word and I do what your word says and as a result, I have a life of freedom. And, and I chose this topic today because I've seen this in my life and, and I get really passionate about it because I've seen it in my life and I feel like it's one of the best kept secrets in the world. Because what does self-wisdom say? What does society say? And, and what does our spiritual enemy say? They all say, if you live according to God's word, you're going to have a really small, constrained prison of a life. And I have found that it's the exact opposite. That the more I look to God's word, the more my life opens up in freedom. Handle your finances God's way. T tithe the... Tithe the first 10% of, of everything you get, sure seems like you'd have a lot less to work with, right? In my experience, the more I handle my finances God's way, well, ever since I started doing that, I always have extra. And I know lots of other people who, it's just, it's, it's weird, doesn't make sense, but it's true. Handle your relationships God's way, and people will love you. They'll respect you. And it's so ironic because I see people handling relationships their way and they want so bad for people to respect them and like them. But they go by the self playbook and it just backfires. You go by God's playbook, it's incredible how this stuff works. So you can call me an idiot, you can disagree, but I get passionate about this because I've seen it and I've experienced it. And I'm like, you know, I'm out of my 20s now, I'm, I'm getting further along in life and I look back and it's like, man, God, this is an incredible life you're letting me live. So full of freedom. It, it, it's, it's incredibly free, and it's not because I'm smart or I've figured anything out. It's just because of God's precepts, his word directing. I've made a lot of bad decisions in my life, like all of us. But the one great decision I made was about 14 years ago, when I decided from now on, whenever I disagree with God's word, I'm going to go with God's word. And I'm, I'm going to just do what this book says. And my wife and kids will tell you I don't do it perfectly, okay? But I do it consistently. I fall down. And when you fall down, you know what? God's word tells you what to do because he knows we're going to fall down. He tells us how to get back up. And, and it leads to a life of freedom. See, God's playbook directs me into freedom, and fulfillment. And this is at the core, down under all the layers, this is about our pride. We don't want to believe that God knows better how we should live life than we do. And some of us claim to be Christians and claim to believe in Jesus, but really at the heart level, we don't want his playbook for our lives. We think we've got a better one. And I just get so passionate about it because I see as a pastor so many people and as a journalist, I saw so many people living by the playbook of self or the playbook of culture. And I've seen where it ends. And in my life, I've seen where God's playbook really does lead to freedom. It's incredible. I see it with my parents also. My parents are nearing their 70s. 
And some people might call them kind of weird in some ways. They probably are. But I saw growing up, my, my parents, this is their playbook in life. So, you know, they don't have a second home. They don't have a lot of luxuries by this world's standards. But their house is totally paid off. They have no debt. They own everything they have. They just live this really humble, faithful life with God. And it is a life of freedom and fulfillment. And I meet in this town retirees their same age who've got four houses and all sorts of stuff and do not have this or this. Just, just make, make God's word the playbook for your life. So let's start here in Psalm 119. We're going to read a few verses and then I'm going to give you some observations. Let's start in verse 57. You are my portion, Lord. I've promised to obey your words. Now, Psalm 119, you might know it's the longest chapter in the Bible, and the whole thing is about making God's word the playbook in our lives. And I love this chapter. Uh, at our staff meeting on Mondays, I'll always we read a chapter with the staff, and our poor staff, about once a month, I'm like, we got to do Psalm 119 again. Uh, because I just, I hunger for it. I, I need it in my life. Let's look at verse 58. I've sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I've considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. There's a reflectiveness in my life where I stop and think, are the choices I'm making what God says in love I should be doing? Verse 60, I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. So two quick observations about God's word and your heart. See, it's easy for us to think, oh, God's word, you know, it's a book. It's words on a paper. It's kind of intellectual. It's just about our minds. But really, God's word is all about our hearts. And here's two observations. First, God can't be my greatest possession in life if his words are not a high priority. If his words are not a priority, then, then he's not a priority. In this verse, the psalm is saying, you are my portion. It's a Hebrew word that means my inheritance, my award, my greatest possession. God, you're my greatest possession in life. That's why I've promised to obey your words. Because you're my greatest thing. So, so that's why I value your words. You know, if, if you've got one of those bumper stickers that says, God is my co-pilot... Or God is my pilot. But you never open his word. Well, it might be time to get a new bumper sticker, okay? You know, I mean, the, the point here is like, don't just say, yeah, I really love Jesus, but I don't really care about what he says. Because you couldn't do that in real life, could you? Like, I really love my spouse, but I mean, she's always just talking nonsense, right? You got some marriage counseling to go to, okay, if that's how you feel. Next, God's word and his person, they're connected. So how do I seek God's face? Well, I seek God's face in prayer by opening his words. God, I want to seek your face by seeking your heart. So what does your heart say? What are your promises for me? I love this verse. I have sought your face with all my heart. Now, all the psalmists, including David, they weren't perfect. They messed up. Seeking God's face doesn't mean you never mess up. But it means there's this consistency to your life. You always come back to this. God, I really screwed up on that one. But Lord, I want, I want to seek you with all my heart. 
So be gracious to me according to your promise. God's promises are connected to his heart. Now, I want to give you four practical ways to choose God's word. Because maybe you're here and you're a believer and you're like, yeah, yeah I've been in church for a while. I've gotten a little, you're, you're, you're right, John. This hasn't really been my playbook. Uh, or maybe you're here and you're trying to figure out what is the great theme that's going to give meaning to my life? What is my playbook going to be? Uh, so I want to give you some easy steps. And I'm going to start with a, an illustration. Now that I'm 30, in my 30s, I cannot eat like I used to eat. This is a sad thing, okay? Because I used to have this ridiculous metabolism. And I could literally eat whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, however much of it I wanted. And I was spoiled, okay? Now, uh, if I do that, I start to gain weight. Actually, it happens really quickly. Um, so I, I don't drink soda anymore. I really try and stay away from sugar. And the hardest thing is just like if I'm having like a chicken chimichanga, I can't eat that whole thing anymore, okay? Here's, here's what I've learned. If I care about my body, all right, I want it to be healthy. I want it to last, you know, 80, 90 years from lucky, right? If I care about my body and I care about the people around me, then, then I have to be intentional about what I put in my body and what I do with my body. And it's exactly the same with your mind. If you care about what playbook am I going to live by, where is my life going to end up, if you care about that, then you've got to be intentional about what goes into your mind and what do you do with your mind. So here's the first way to choose God's word as your playbook. Examine your life choices. Just like you examine, you know, oh man, I gained 15 pounds in the last three months. What have I been eating Examine your life choices and daily turn your steps towards God's plan. That's what the psalmist is saying here in verse 59. I've considered my ways. There's this reflectiveness, and this is countercultural right now. To be reflective, I have to turn off my phone, to close my laptop, to make sure the TV's off and the radio's off. And if you've got a tablet, you've got to have that off too. And on top of all that, you've got to find somewhere alone and consider your ways. This is hard work now. This didn't used to be hard work to stop and consider your ways. And by considering your ways, here's what it looks like for me. If you, if you were to open up my little devotional journals that I use, and I like to write with a pen on paper, and you'd find, first of all, that I'm a very inconsistent person. There's patches where every day I'm talking to God, and then there's patches of life where, man, a whole week went by. And you know what? Usually those patches where a whole week went by are the times my life starts to unravel, okay? But here's what you'd find in my journal if you open it up. You usually start off, God, here's what's on my mind. Because I like whenever I sit down and I turn off all the inputs, there's all this stuff in my mind. And so I, I almost always start with a, bullet, a list of bullet points. Because God cares about this stuff. And this is considering your ways. When you say, God, here's what's going on with me. Um, first of all, there's this car I really want, and I think it's probably just a distraction mechanism because I don't want to deal with this responsibility. But also, God, there's this thing with Mel, my spouse. There's this thing with my kids. I'm not sure what to do. There's this thing at work. There's this conflict with this person. There's this concern I have for Cornerstone and how she's doing as a church. There's, there's God, I've got these just like I'm grieved about these things that are happening in the world. And, and it's just this long bullet points. I mean, sometimes it's eight, 12 things. God, this is my ways. 
and I'm considering them, and, and God, I'm bringing them to you. You see, I think a lot of people get intimidated by the Bible because it's a giant book, right? A lot of them look like dictionaries or encyclopedias. People get intimidated because it's a big book. And people get intimidated because maybe you've heard that to read God's word, you have to read like eight chapters a day. I don't read eight chapters a day. Some days I don't read one chapter, okay? But, but here's what this looks like. Consider your ways and then turn, pivot, adjust your steps to follow what God says to do. And, and so it can be really simple. Sometimes I've got five minutes to do this. Open up the journal. God, here's all the stuff. Here's all the decisions I'm worried about. Here's all the things I'm concerned about. Lord, what does your word say? What do you say? What do you want me to do? I'm seeking your face. And, and a lot of times, I get to verse three of whatever I'm reading, and there it is. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Oh, I see it now, Lord. That conflict, it, it, wherever, it's, it's because I've, I've got pride in my heart. And you just, you get that one thing, and, and you turn your steps to that and you just do it that day and that's how God starts to transform your mind so don't be intimidated you don't have to be a bible scholar you don't have to go to seminary I meet a lot of people who they'll hear a message like this and they'll think yeah I'm gonna really make God's word a priority in my life and so they start in Genesis and they get to you know maybe Leviticus or Numbers and they just throw in the towel right some of that old testament stuff is weird tricky okay I don't read 20 chapters a day, but, but I've seen God, that he changes my heart and mind. You know, a lot of days I'll just read a psalm or a proverb, chapter from the New Testament. And if I get a whole chapter done, great. But many days I just get to that thing that was for me today and I take it with me. Next, if you really want to make God's word the playbook in your life, here's another way to do so. Commit beforehand. I will obey God's commands no matter what. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. This is a key moment if you're a Christian. This is a life-defining moment when you make the decision, God, whenever I disagree with your word, I'm going to go with your word. I'm not going to trust in myself. I'm not going to be, as scripture would say, wise in my own eyes. Have you ever made that decision? As God's maturing you, as you follow Christ, as you learn more about him, have you, have you made that decision where you say, God, when it comes to my life, every time me and your word disagree, I'm going to go with your word. It leads to freedom. It leads to freedom. Here's step three. If you really want to choose God's word as your playbook, side with God's word when the culture around you calls it Foolish. And for thousands of years, the culture around God's people has been calling it foolish in different ways. This is a great verse. Though the wicked bind me with ropes. So your college professor tried to make you look like an idiot in front of the class. Did he bind you with ropes? Okay. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. This is a, a pre-decision. No matter what kind of opposition I face in life, now, because I'm living by his word, I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to be humble. I'm not going to be a jerk about it, but I'm going to stay true to it. I've pre-decided that. And, and I love the idea in here of no matter what is happening with my life circumstances, no matter how bad they are or no matter how great they are, I'm not going to forget your word. 
Because as a pastor, I see, I see Christians who, you know, there's, there's money in the bank. They get the promotion. Marriage is, you know, kind of sustainable. Things are good. And they just kind of, they're not at church anymore. And then life falls apart and they come back to church. And they, they start to go by God's rules for a while and gets them back up on their feet and it restores their marriage and, and they start to do better in their career. And, and then after a while, man, do we really need God so much? Life's going pretty well. Trusting God's word more than I trust myself, siding with God no matter what's going on in my life. No life circumstance, great or terrible, that will turn me away from your word, God. Fourth way, if you want to choose this as your playbook today, trust God's word more than you trust yourself. Now, this doesn't mean be uneducated and check your brain at the door, okay? Look in world history and you see world-leading physicists, inventors, surgeons, pioneering people of great intellect who lived by this. Read about Isaac Newton sometime, Newtonian physics. He, he, he believed this. Okay, this doesn't mean that you have to be stupid, okay? You can be very intellectual, you can be very bright and acknowledge that God, as much as you've given me gifts to understand certain components of life, when it comes to my inner person and my eternity, you know a lot more than I do. And I'm going to trust you more than I trust myself. Why is David up at midnight? He says, I rise at midnight. You got you to remember, no TV, no electricity, no electric lights. Societies like that, people usually go to bed shortly after the sun sets. So if you're getting up at midnight, there's usually just like one or two reasons, right? Maybe you have to go to the bathroom. Or maybe you can't sleep. And it's like, you know, David, when he can't sleep, and he looks and he thinks, this is how it is for me anyway, when I can't sleep and my life just feels like it's fraying apart. And then I look to God's word and I say, God, I can't fit all these parts together. I can't make sense of it. There's no coherence. And then I look to his word. And then it starts to fit together. And you do that enough times that you look back on life and, and you rejoice. And it's like, wow, this is awesome. This makes my life make sense. This gives freedom to my life. I mean, if it wasn't for this, I would be divorced. If it wasn't for this, I would be in so much debt. If it wasn't for this, I would be such a jerk. If it wasn't for this, I would be just a terrible, terrible person. And, and there's so much good in my life, and it's not because of who I am. It's because Christ is in me and he's given me the heart of God as a playbook for life. And when I do it his way, these great things happen that I could never do on my own. A life directed by God's word is a life of open field adventures, of discovering God's goodness and wonder under every rock, over every hill, behind every tree. It's a life of freedom and companionship with the one who created you. And the more I experience, the more hungry I get for it. God, give me more of it. Give me more of that. I've got a mentor in life in these pages. I've got a mentor 
who mentored the most influential people for good in world history and who had a front row seat to watch the most evil people in history. And he says, here's what to do with your life. Here's what not to do with your life. I want you to imagine, as we close, I want you to imagine your life if everyone in your life lived by God's playbook. Imagine your relationships if everyone in your household said, you know, the playbook says treat others better than you treat yourself. The playbook says honor others above yourself. The playbook says don't think more highly of yourself than you should. So that's how a whole house of people lives. What would it look like? Imagine your workplace. If everyone at your workplace said, you know, we go by the playbook here, and the playbook says Jesus, who was God, he humbled himself and became a servant. So every one of us around here, we've got this servant mentality. What would your workplace look like? What would your family life look like? Imagine a community where all the little boys and girls who are growing up, they grow up with the security of knowing mom and dad will always be together because mom and dad live by God's playbook. Think of the psychological, developmental security those kids have. Imagine boys who know dad, my dad, he does what he believes, and I know who my dad's going to be for the rest of his life because he goes by the playbook. And he's not perfect, but he apologizes when he's not. And, And I saw that time when dad got laid off. I saw that time when dad got cheated on that business deal. And I saw how he was, and I know who my dad is because I know his playbook. Imagine a life in which your most difficult decisions aren't this struggle of, well, what should I do? What does so-and-so think? I really, ah. But instead, it's just, I'm going to look at the playbook. My decision's already been made. I just got to figure out what it is. I want to close with a devotional from Tony Dungy, Super Bowl winning NFL coach. He writes this, running an offense requires faith. A quarterback has to throw the ball to a spot before the receiver has even gotten there. In fact, before the receiver has even cut to run in that direction. The quarterback has to trust that the receiver will run his route correctly. And the receiver has to stick with the planned route, trusting that when he gets to that place, at that moment, the ball will arrive there. If either player depends on what he sees and not on the plan as a design, then the play will be a failure. They have to believe in the route. That's how life works too, he writes. We have to trust that the assignment God has given us is the right one whether it looks like we're in the middle of the action right now or not. We need to know that the people and circumstances around us are all running a pattern that will work out for good. The route we're running is designed well, and the ball will get to us in the right spot at the right time. As we carry out our assignments faithfully, the results will come. We need to forsake our natural instincts and play our position, no matter how things look, trusting that the plan will work. That's what it means to live by faith and not by sight. Would you guys stand and pray together with me? Father, I am so thankful for how your word has set me free in life. 
And I know I get passionate about it and maybe I didn't make sense to some people, but Lord, I know that your desire for every person in this room is that they would have meaning and coherence and peace and purpose in their lives and that that's found only in you, Jesus. And after we trust in you, it's found daily as we look to your word. Lord, it gives us light to our paths, direction for our feet, wisdom for every decision. Father, I just want to pray for every man and woman in this room right now. Will you give us humility to acknowledge what playbook we've been playing by? Where it's the culture or ourselves, will you give us eyes to just be real and honest with ourselves about that? Lord, for some in here, there's still intellectual questions and doubts and it just seems backward to trust your word more than they trust themselves. I pray that you would just work in their hearts and minds and lives. Lord, for those of us who know you, we want to go from here today just having recommitted that your word is the standard for what we do and believe. And our marriages will be defined not by how we feel, but by what your word says. Our careers will be defined by what your word says. Our actions in moments of controversy and difficulty, Lord, we want to follow what you say. We trust you more than we trust ourselves. So Lord, as we go from here today, we just pre-decide, we pre-choose, we want to walk according to your words. Will you give us the strength to do that as we go from here today? We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.